what people are starting to see, at least in, in the occupation uh, of, of Palestine, is um, just an, an increasing crisis of humanitarian condition. Do you think you can expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd also just, I, I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. That's right. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Oh, what an idiot. I, I love it. I'm just not an expert on this, but hey, here are my ideas. <laughs> welcome. Hello and welcome. I am Josh Holmes with my co-host, Comfortably Smug and Michael Duncan. Welcome to Tuesday's episode of the Variety Program. Yeah. I, th- not only is this going to be a big episode, it's this week we had so many guests. We had so much content. We had to get it out. It's going to be, you know, it's triple header. It's one of these weeks where we're dropping three episodes, folks. I mean, this is a serious deal. We've got a action packs lineup. We're working hard. Yeah, right. And and it's uh, let me say, I, you know, I think everyone already knows we got Chris Christie on today's program. Man, that interview. I mean, the guy's fire. Great interview. He's one of the best interviews in politics because there is no question that he doesn't take on the notes. He doesn't dance around it. Yep. And there's like 18 different tricky, like potentially politically problematic things about his way he approaches things. And he's like, screw it. I'm going to yep. answer it exactly how I want to. Full speed ahead. It was so good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we should get right into the meat and potatoes. What do we have first on? What's first on the docket here? Well, we've got a lot of important stuff, but the one thing I want to start with, Smug, because we've spent quite a bit of time in the last couple of weeks talking about you fighting horses. <laughs> right. And there are two developments in the horse fighting uh, realm that I think are worth covering. First of all, your junkie horse did not win on Saturday at the Preakness. Sadly, sadly. We, yeah. I, had, I had the note. Uh, our lawyer tells us we need to add disclaimer that we aren't encouraging you to fight horses. Folks, don't fight horses. This is like a, uh, you know... <coughs> If it's you or the horse, I mean, that's one thing. Well, so our good friend, a guy I have known and worked uh, with over the years, Charlie Hurt, Mm -hmm. uh, who you all probably know from his Fox News fame, decided to take you up on that smug. He fought a horse. See, I think I think he was attacked by the horse. I I don't think it was like mutually understood, you know, (laughs) two enter one leaves. I think the horse jumped him. The horse certainly did something because he appeared on Fox News today with a shiner like nobody's business. And it called into question, Smug, uh, whether or not you would actually be able to take out a horse as you have claimed. I mean, that's the thing is I gave I gave the advice, uh, you know, I, I wasn't there. I don't know if it was mutual combat or if it was, as I suspect, just a horse attack. <laughs> Folks, you got to go for the roundhouse first. If it's if it's like head to head, you have to get the horse ASAP or else you're going to end up in that situation. So, well, it, it you know, was, I wish him the best. I hope he gets well soon. You know, you could take a horse if it's head to head, go for the, go for that roundhouse folks. Well, I think he was, so I think he was on the horse and the way he explains it, we should have him on the program to explain. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, 
But the way he explains it is the heads, the head of the horse hit him in the eye. Mm. He maintained his balance on the horse, which he claimed credit for. I, I don't know. I've got to see the horse. If this horse is shaken up at all by the, the encounter. I mean, I think that goes to show you like how out of control horses are. Like these are not disciplined fighters. It's like bumping heads. It doesn't know what it's doing. It's dopey creatures. Well, Absolutely. You could take a horse. I think so. You gov America, a polling outfit, uh, national polling outfit, obviously listens to the program. <laughs> I was, I couldn't believe this happened. So they decided that they were going to poll the question of what animal do you think you could beat in a fight? Unarmed, unarmed. They make, they made it very clear it's unarmed, right? And they list all of these a rat, a house cat, a goose, like everybody can take, of course that, right? An eagle. There's like 30% of people who believe that they can take an eagle. Like I'm pretty sure an eagle is going to, it, it, it's going to win. Gonna what, win. I, what I was most shocked is, and I think I brought this up before, 17% thought they could take a chimpanzee. Like <laughs> that is such foolishness. No one takes a chimp. No one takes a chimp. Like uh, uh, I, I, someone posted these photos of there's this like, uh, I don't know which zoo has it. There's some chimp that has some disorder or whatever, has no fur. So when you see a chimp without fur, it's just ripped, rock solid. And like uh, I, I'd read somewhere, chimps are like six times stronger than humans. Like chimps just going to rip your arms off, folks. Don't fight a chimp. I would absolutely never fight a chimp. Well, I want to know, I, I want to know who, who are the 28% of Americans who don't think they could take a rat, right? <laughs> How weak are you? I mean, I, I just don't understand that. Like at very least you'd be able to outsmart the rat and kick it. You would something. think so. Right. But there, but then you go to the other end of the spectrum and there are 15% of people who believe that they can take out a King Cobra with no weapons. That's so wild. <laughs> some of these, some of these folks, like some of these numbers are really out there. Like there's what there we got six percent of people who really think they could take a grizzly bear. Like that is just like from the beginning it's over. But I think importantly, they did include horses in another part of the poll, perhaps not in the head-to-head -head animal matchups, or at least people were not volunteering that they could take a horse. But like there's important information here, uh, and they have cross tabs. I encourage everybody to go look at it because there's important animal fighting information. <laughs> People like the animal fighting. They do. They do. Again, disclaimer, this is not to encourage people to fight animals. This is only if it's like a head-to-head, life-or-death situation. Thank that's you, right. our lawyers. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Thank you, Smug. All right. So in, speaking of polling, though, there's plenty of polling uh, out there. And a new CBS News poll, I think, affirmed everything that we have said on the Variety program. And they still don't get it. The yep. journals still don't get it. So CBS News did a poll where a majority of Republicans are, in fact, this is, let me just break it down exactly what this is. They, they're weighing in on the leadership election, right? Where, where Republicans across the country are in the leadership election. And they, you know, they throw out some numbers, they've got this and they've got that. But then they, then they break it down about how important this is to you. Like how, how important is, is this leadership election? And like, it's not, it's not important at all. The only thing that people care about, 73% propose important legislation or they agree with you on economic policy 
or they agree with you on cultural and, and values. Like there's basically all of these things that we've been saying on the variety program that actual Republican voters care about, that actual Republican elected leaders are trying to accomplish. And yet, no, the media is just completely focused on a leadership election and what that means to the Republican Party. The truth is the American people were polled. It doesn't mean anything. And, and I, again, I got to spike the football. We were telling you people this. No one outside of D.C. cares about this, even knows about this. It, it doesn't matter to them. All the issues that the Biden administration is failing on is what you know real Americans across this country are concerned with. And that's why you have the media fixated on this, because they don't want to talk about all the problems going on. They want everyone focused on this absolutely meaningful inside baseball garbage. It, completely. And if you notice, you literally can't pick up a newspaper in the English speaking world where they don't have some stat about like, oh, the number of Republicans that are disturbed about the 2020 election. And look at how crazy these people are because they still believe that there are problems with the 2020 election. And like they included the question overtly here. And it's not within the top five things that Republican voters are actually concerned about. I mean, it, it it's strange to me because on one level, all of the important discussion that we're having across the country on election reforms and strengthening the process and the procedures and everything else, it's incredibly important. It's really important. They'll, they'd have you believe it's, a, it's a, a question of race, which of course it's not. But, but more importantly, what we've been saying on Ruthless is that there are massive things happening in this country right now where you may not recognize the country you, you live in two or four years from now if you don't get focused on it. Well, it turns out that's exactly what voters think themselves. Yep. That's the thing, folks. Don't take the bait. Eyes on the prize. Just don't, don't take the bait. Take the bait. Don't do it. Don't do it. So, <clears throat> you know what we need to move on to and what every every journal in the country was discussing this past weekend. <laughs> uh, so Israel is experiencing a lot of rockets being shot at them. And uh, they fly into building in, in Gaza. That was a nerve center for propaganda and disinformation. And Hamas was also in the building. But the reason the journalists were mad was because this is like the, the where Al Jazeera and the Associated Press were based out of. And one thing that they always neglect to mention is they received, they received warnings ahead of it. They got everyone out of the building and then they hit the target. It's like, okay, uh, it was... The journalism or, or these journals being outraged about this when afterwards you see exactly what happened is journalists knew that this is a building that's being used by Hamas. How do they know? So one of the pod bros, uh, Tommy Vitor, tweets out that, uh, well, he knew Hamas was in the building because, you know, he talked to the folks there uh, and, and they all were aware of this. There were instances where members of Hamas had, had gone into the newsroom with the AP and express their displeasure if they didn't get the kind of coverage they wanted. Hamas? So, Hamas. Members of Hamas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all this information gets out. Uh, of course, you know, the journalists only want to talk about, oh my gosh, uh, you know, how, how can you let this happen? Folks, if you're in a building with Hamas, uh, I, you know, maybe, maybe think about there's ramifications for this. Let me, let, me read the, let me read the tweet directly from Tommy Vitor. Shout out Podros. He said, last thought on this. I'm sure Hamas offices were in that building and that they purpose, purposely co-locate operations with civilians. You don't say. 
you don't say. And then someone asks, they're like, uh, you know, just interested to hear, uh, you know, wh why are we taking this as fact? Is there evidence to be sure? And he replies, I talked to people who worked in the building. So he confirms, yeah, they knew that Hamas was there. And then there were there were reports coming out of uh, uh, Hamas had gone into newsrooms at the AP and at Al Jazeera. Wait, what? And and for them to play dumb about this is incredible. There was the there was a story in the Atlantic that people were were posting on on Twitter, um, and I'll just read read from the Atlantic. <clears throat> when Hamas leaders surveyed their assets before the summer's round of fighting. They knew that among those assets was the international press. The AP staff in Gaza City would witness a rocket launch right beside their office, endangering reporters and other civilians nearby. And the AP wouldn't report it. Not even in AP articles about Israeli claims that Hamas was launching rockets from residential areas. This happened. Hamas fighters would burst into the AP's Gaza Bureau and threaten the staff, and the AP wouldn't report it. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I have wow. so many questions. Yep. I have so many questions. The first thing is, this is the second week in a row we've referenced an Atlantic article. What is going mm -hmm. on? Is there, I don't know. Is there objectivity over at the Atlantic? They're doing journalism. Holy cats. Well, but here's my, this is my real observation. Hamas, first of all, Hamas has spokespeople. Right. Comms <laughs> director of Hamas. That's a tough gig. Not a job I want. Hey, this is... Uh, you know, comms director at Hamas. I, I, I hopefully don't end up under like a drone strike. Uh, storming Listen, into. I'm just calling. I'm just calling about that uh, the reporting on the rocket attacks. You know, I don't think that's fair. I mean, how, how do you? Is it really organized like that? I, it must have been tense. You know, you've got these two terror groups facing off. You've got Hamas. You've got the AP. <laughs> What's that got to be like? They just storm into the AP offices and they're like, hey, folks, we're not happy about the coverage. And the AP's like, well, we won't report on this. Unbelievable. I mean, I'm just trying to think about like how that's organized. You've got office space with the, and you just, what do you trudge upstairs with a cup of coffee? You're like, hey, listen, the, the bombings are, are, are fine. I, I'd appreciate if you didn't co-locate or just to say where we're launching from. Right. I mean, uh, you know, subletting from groups that are on, you know, the State Department's terror list, uh, not the brightest idea you got. And you have to know, Hamas knows exactly why they want that set up. They want to fire rockets from 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 places that they can uh, indiscriminately shoot these rockets to hope they're hoping they will hit civilians. And their cover is going to be like, hey, you know, uh, how can you you can't bomb a residential area? Well, Israel sees these rockets coming out of this building. They tell everyone to get out of the building, and then they bomb the building. Seems, the old, the like old Hamas, we, the whole, the old Hamas we work strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Classic. Oh, but yeah, Israel's, no. Israel's, the, Israel's just, the bad place. Israel's the bad place. Yeah. yeah, right. Israel's the bad place. Al Qaeda's just down the hall. You can check their pod. Unbelievable. I literally, this is blowing my mind. So anyway, AP denies all of this. They say the, the president said that they had absolutely no idea they were located in the same building as Hamas. Oh, Sounds yeah. to me like there's more explaining to do on all of that. But either way, yikes. The thing that, that jumps off the page to me about this discussion is two things. One, amazing how during the Trump years, this didn't happen. Right amazing how we went as long as we did 
without a war between the Palestinians and the Israelis while Trump was there, right? I don't know. I, it seems like a hell of a coincidence, doesn't it? It seems I mean, like a hell of a coincidence. It, it, it's really something. Um, it, it shows that when you have these like uh, narratives that the media is trying to push about like, oh my gosh, Republican civil war, you have to think why they're doing it. Because right now it's become abundantly clear that in five months, the Biden administration has been a complete disaster. Absolute disaster. disaster. You've got gas lines. You've got rockets being fired in the Middle East. Prices keep going up. People don't want to go back to work. We have a, we have a total crisis. But hey, you know, journalists, as usual, want to turn any situation into one of two narratives, either Republican civil war or make themselves a story. That's all journalists know how to do anymore. It, it's it's amazingly true. It's amazingly true. Well, either way, that's one thing that jumped off the page. The second thing that jumped off the page for me is the number of Democrats who are embracing a unabashed, like anti-Israel commentary on what's Isn't happening. that something? It actually is something because, you know, like 10 years ago, that just simply didn't exist. There was complete bipartisan support for Israel. It was basically not a partisan issue whatsoever. Fast forward 10 years, and it's a partisan issue. It's a partisan issue. It's just incredible to me. How, how is the existence of Israel all of a sudden a, something to be contextualized on the left? Well, I mean, there was this image that really you know, got posted all over the internet where you, know, you saw the night sky uh, over in uh, uh, Israel, in Gaza, and you see these rockets just taking flight from the right side of the, of the image, where it's just these rockets indiscriminately just like flying towards targets. And then you see on the left, Iron Dome rockets like, you know, curving and, and getting into, uh, you know, trajectory to intercept those. And that just tells you about the conflict is you've got, you know, one group, Hamas, a, a terror group, firing indiscriminately, hoping that they hit civilians. And Israel is focused on just intercepting those rockets. And, and we're getting an argument about both sides. It's incredible. So, so I want to actually, we didn't plan this, but I actually want to do a little bit more on this because Duncan worked in Israel. And he, I'm sure he, you have some perspective on, on all of this, but the thing that most people don't know because the press didn't cover is that there was foreign uh, interference in the Israeli elections several years ago. And the perpetrator was the American government. And there were a number of things that were uncovered in subsequent investigations by Republicans in the Senate that showed that the Obama administration was working feverishly to try to out oust uh, Netanyahu. Yeah, and you paid for it. <clears throat> you paid for it through the State Department. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, I, I, I worked in Israel in the 2015 election for Prime Minister Netanyahu. And basically what happened was the State Department, uh, you know, did a grant to an organization called, I believe it was One Voice, um, yeah, that's right. which, which was tasked with basically um, doing voter registration work in, in Israel, you know, a really uh, good bipartisan thing for us to be investing money in through the State Department. Well, it turns out what it really was, was basically, you know, what we would call like a dark money organization that then passed all of that data to a political outfit 
called V15 that was tasked solely with one goal, remove Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Incredible. And, and, and the guy who ran the thing was Jeremy Byrd. There you go. Who worked for President Obama. He was his political director in 2012? Yeah, 2012, I believe. It's just surreal, surreal. Uh, you know, I lived in, in, in Tel Aviv, but when I had, you know, meeting, a lot of meetings, you know, with the prime minister of the campaign, we would do them in, in Jerusalem. And, and, and you would, you know, walk into like the King David Hotel and it would be like we were at the Monocle, you know, in Washington, D.C. You know, I'd be, I'd be sitting there in the lobby, um, you know, meeting with the Netanyahu team. And there on the other side of the room is, you know, all of Obama's bros, you know, uh, working wow. for V15, trying to, you know, oust the prime minister of an ally. Uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. And now it's just it's just crazy. You know, we're in this place now, like you were mentioning earlier, Josh, where like, you know, we used to have bipartisan support for Israel. Well, like those were the early seeds of what we're seeing now. Now AOC can say apartheid states aren't democracies Unbelievable. in reference to Israel. And, you know, we played it at the top of the show. The second she's questioned about that, oh, I'm not the expert. <laughs> you know, all I am is an elected representative of the American government. Perfect. What do I know? Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. But we beat them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you won in record fashion. I mean, that was that's the, the great irony of the whole thing is the time they actually tried to put their back into it. Uh, Netanyahu absolutely rolled them. <laughs> Love to see it. <laughs> Love to see it. But there's big there's big issues at stake. And as a conservative, I got to say, we're not wavering in our support for Israel one iota. And I, I just think that the Democratic uh, Party's de departure from that is not only a, a big problem from a moral standpoint, but politically, you got to think it's going to hurt him too. I mean, there's just, they have been a steadfast ally in the Middle East during some really rough times. And the fact that they're abandoning them, particularly after the successes that like Kushner and Pompeo made over the last few years is just incredible, just totally disappointing. All right. So the next thing we got to get to is this New York Times piece that they wrote over the weekend on Joe Biden, which I think I think it was like the the lib on lib version of a hit piece that just read so perfectly as a he cares too much as, so his, as, his, as his fault. So it's beneath Joe Biden's folksy demeanor, a short fuse and an obsession with details. Uh, here's my favorite paragraph. What emerges is a portrait of a president with a short fuse who is obsessed with getting the details right, sometimes to a fault, including when he angered allies and adversaries alike by repeatedly delaying a decision on whether to allow more refugees into the United States. So this is just like a perfect lib to lib. He just cares too much. It's you such know, a it's joke. It's such a, it's like, you know how they're like, uh, you know, if you're in an interview and they ask, what's your weakness? Well, I care too much. That's what they pulled here. That's what they pulled here. Like, how can you call yourself a journalist and give this fluff garbage out there? It, what's funny is like the best hit on Biden is he's totally asleep at the wheel, right? That he campaigned mm -hmm. as a moderate, but like he entered the White House and somebody else is running the show. And so what emerges here is a New York Times piece saying, oh, no, 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 no. He's very active. In fact, to a fault, 
He cares so much about the details. It's a problem. Like the reasons nothing is getting uh, accomplished is because he cares too much. It has nothing to do with he's asleep at the wheel, folks, which we all know he is. It's just uh, he cares a little too much. But if you look back at that paragraph that I highlighted, my favorite part about it is what emerges is a portrait of a president with a short fuse who is obsessed with getting the details right. Name me a fucking detail this guy's gotten right. He's got a short fuse. I mean, can he, I can imagine those meetings. He's like, listen, I was told I was going to get pudding. It's two o'clock. My blood sugar's dropping. What's going on here? I just love the Stockholm syndrome of it all, right? Like he has a short fuse. He only yells and cusses me out because he loves me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? He cares so much. He just cares so much. It has nothing to do with he's just like confused and shouting. Look and what you made me done. do. Hey, hey. <laughs> look what you made me do. I've yelled again. I mean, listen, <laughs> this does not sound like a president who is capable of leading in a crisis. And, you know, maybe it's because of that failure, you know, that we've gone from crisis to crisis in just the past five months. Like yeah, the New well- York Times had this other article where they're like, Listen, folks, what if not everything is a crisis? Now they're trying to push that. During, yeah. d- during the Trump years, it was like, oh, my God, he he, he tweeted. Folks, this is unprecedented. Well, they, had, they had psychologists on CNN in primetime diagnosing President Trump um, as a crazy person who was unfit to be president and needed to be removed by the 25th Amendment. Right. And now they... Then they spin a story about a doddering old man with a short fuse, no memory, who cusses people out as a positive. <laughs> well, and they, they actually slip another little detail in here that I think it actually does tell on themselves quite a bit. It doesn't, they don't mean it to, obviously. But what they say is, as a longtime advisor put it, I'm quoting from the New York Times article, he needs time to process the material so he feels comfortable selling it to the public. Wow. But I mean, it, it actually, the one thing that I remember about him being vice president is that he opposed the bin Laden raid, right? And it was that he needed more time. He needed to figure it out. So it seems like, I mean, regardless of what you think about the, the president's state of mental acuity, it seems like that's one constant that we've been dealing with for a while is that he can't make decisions. If he does make decisions, it's drawn out long over, over a period of time. I, I- it's really shameless. It's absolutely shameless what's become of the media where during the Trump years, they knew, you know, uh, where their butter, how to butter their bread. They just push any headline with Trump, anything, anything he does, they'd push it as sensational story as possible. Here we are. We've got gas lines. We've got rockets going off in the Middle East. We've got inflation. Prices are going up. People aren't getting back to work. And you know what? Maybe it's just that he cares too much. He just cares too much, Smug. He just cares too much. Well, I'll tell you somebody who doesn't care enough. It's a White House economic advisor, Cecilia Rouse. Let's play her audio. It was also, um, it was, you know, getting into the details. Um, It was, I think, Easter happened in March this year. Uh, The seasonal adjustments are a little funny within the BLS report. So basically, (laughs) she blames. (laughs) Listen. She blames the job. (laughs) (laughs) This lady, I mean, you recall, and Duncan, you made an issue of this last week that the that the Biden White House was 
directly confronted about the idea that these plus ups in unemployment have contributed to the lack of job growth. And they found every other way initially to try to explain it only to 48 hours later say, okay, well, yeah, maybe it is a problem. We need to Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't, you know, the, the expanded UI wasn't contributing to the poor jobs report. And then like, you know, that was on Friday. And then by Monday morning, Biden had to clean it up and say, if you apply to a job that you are qualified for and don't take it, you aren't going to get your expanded unemployment insurance. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, I, a complete about face. They even denied that this was a bad jobs report. And now the answer is, well, it was bad, but it was only bad because Easter was in March, even though it was actually in April. <laughs> well, those so, March man. So, so like somebody gets, get, needs to get a hold of Cecilia and let her know that they changed directions on this because now she's putting Easter into March, which. <laughs> you know, so great. It's a hard sell. Let me just say it's a hard sell. You know, most people remember it. <laughs> All right. So let's get to this next topic. And this is a big one because I watched 60 minutes on Sunday mouth agape right. mouth agape at the UFOs. Um, I've kind of felt, I, I, you know, I, I knew, I knew they were real for a while now, but the fact that you have the government, you have the military confirming this and it was scary. The details that they put out there, they're like, this, you know, it, it was it was a UFO. It can fly like I don't know. They said like thirteen thousand miles an hour. It can just like change direction, and they're like, yeah, oh, you know, yeah, we, we've seen that a few times. But the, I mean, the level of candor that was being sort of bantered about as though you know this is something the government's had their eye on for a little while, and I, I just I don't know. I mean, I felt like I was always one of those guys who were like, yeah, no UFOs, but but now you've got people who are pretty credibly saying. Yeah, no, they exist. I mean, what look, do you look, do? Hold on here. Okay, so first of all, Holmes, you, you often make fun of me because I like sci-fi. I do. Uh, and I, do. I think you've called me a nerd. I have. Um, you know, Arrival, Interstellar, Annihilation. I love a good sci-fi flick, okay? And I would love for this to be aliens. But like, when we broadcast like millions of signals around the world through networks. Why would aliens need to physically observe human beings when they could just intercept any one of those broadcast signals? I mean, everything from bad girls club to the state of the union we have on television. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So you're saying there's absolutely no need to actually visit us so long as they describe subscribe they could, to they Direct could get TV. a good they could get a good view of our entire race's like degeneracy from bad girls club and southern charm to you know the state of the union just just with like a set of bunny ears <laughs> i love like, it why would they need to come in with with a a ufo so you don't buy it look I'm willing to, to believe that aliens are real. I just don't think they would have any need to actually enter our atmosphere in order to observe us. Wait, so, so to be clear, your problem is with the strategy of the alien. I think it's a poor strategy. I mean, if somebody <laughs> capable of inter interstellar travel, um, to think that they would need to physically observe us from a space with or a spaceship within our atmosphere, I think is sort of silly. 
is the most Duncan take of all time. Well, I've thought Aliens a lot about have it. visited us. He doesn't deny their existence, but he questions the strategy by which they visited us. Amazing. Maybe they're already among us. Smug, what do you do if one of these things lands in your backyard? I mean, I, I, it's pretty clear. You have to, you have to, uh, you know, let them know. Exert dominance, I guess. Uh, you've heard all these reports about they've been probing our people for years. You got to return the favor. Well, you're going to probe them. 100%, without a doubt. You have, to, you have to assert dominance, let them know, welcome to Earth, we run things here, and this is how we do things. About to get probed. <laughs> My God. Whatever oh. comes out of that ship. I don't care what? if it's a, an alien, an Ewok, I don't care what it is, they're going to learn. What? <laughs> Whatever comes out of the ship is getting probed. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, it's going to be a clash of planets. So, hey, we're going to send that message first. This is this is a being of higher intelligence that's managed to master interstellar travel and land on our planet. And you think you can just take them just like that. Oh, this is like more absurd than your horse fighting. No, you have to do it. I mean, what's the alien going to do? They're like, well, listen, we had it coming. <laughs> Probe it. I'm having trouble composing myself for the next segment. If the, if the alien lands in California, um, he'll immediately get citizenship in an absentee ballot. Well, there you go, right? <laughs> they don't have to show up with ID. There you go. And, and, and apparently a, a legal case against Smug, but we, we, won't, go, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go there. All right, all right, all right, all right. So... The last thing we need to hit before we get to an, an incredible interview is this permanent lockdown condition of COVID and what the libs have made of it. The first thing I want to get to, because I know you get an odd take on this, uh, Duncan, is is Cuomo's book deal. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you know, uh, news came out that uh, Andrew Cuomo's COVID book deal was worth Five point one two million dollars, man. Mind, mind you, um, that he was responsible for senior citizens dying in nursing homes um, by the thousands while he was putting this book together about how he beat COVID. Um, in that, uh, on his net income, um, he gave away half a million to um, United Way out of the. Book deal, good for him. He also managed to sock away a million dollars in a trust fund for his daughters. Ugh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This guy's the biggest dirt. How bag, many? Like man. how many seniors got killed? Uh, and they tried. We know now for a fact. You know, his people tried covering up those numbers from the feds. While this guy is on CNN with his brother. I mean, like that's that's journalism today, right, folks? With his brother clowning around with a giant Q-tip, folks are dying. He's getting his five million for a book deal. He's giving a million to his daughter's trust fund. Yeah, and that's when people were actually watching CNN, right? So, I mean, vast majority <laughs> of people who are who are tuned in at that point, trying to get some information about COVID, were like, "Oh, I guess this guy's doing it well." CNN says that you know he's an expert on all this stuff. Let's buy his book. Unbelievable. Uh, Unbelievable. They, and, and they and they went after DeSantis while they're like, oh, you know, Andrew Cuomo, he did it right. He did a great job. It's unbelievable what the media has done. 
All right. So here's this, here's the second one. And this one really chaps my hide. I mean, this one really, really gets me going. Politico tweets out this story. The Biden administration and teachers unions are mounting a campaign to return American children to classrooms five days a week. Wow. It's just so offensive. I it's just, hate it's, it. It's just so offensive. I mean, singularly, these teachers unions have been responsible for keeping our kids out of the classroom against the science for more than six months now because these people like Randy Weingarten are just gaslight us all day and extort the American taxpayer being like, oh, you know, we need $122 billion in Biden's COVID bill went, went to these schools. $67 billion in 2020 through the CARES Act and the other uh, coronavirus bill. Which, by the way, they weren't in school to spend. Right. Right. On and on top of what they were already allocated in the budget. Right. It, it, I mean, it's truly one of the most remarkable revisionist histories of all time to suggest that the Biden administration or teachers unions are mounting a campaign to get their children back into school. I and, mean, are you kidding me? In the they tell are here. so shameless. Holmes, they are Holmes, so the shameless. Tell, the, the tell in this is just incredible. So, you know, Politico put up that tweet and it, it linked to, you know, their weekly education coronavirus special edition newsletter. And here's the graph that really got my attention. As the school year comes to a close, First of all, school year in which, you know, a lot of kids were not in school, had remote graduation. Right. As the school year comes to a close and focus turns to the next academic year, lawmakers and education groups are urging Congress and the Biden administration to ensure that schools have the resources. My God. Have the resources to meet their students' most urgent social and emotional needs when they do at last return. I, I mean, it's extortion. It's, what a, that is. it's a it's extortion wrapped in a press release by our media is supposed to be holding these people accountable. I can't I literally can't believe that paragraph. That is one of the most astounding written. Par I Whoever wrote that. Do we is there a, is there a journalist's name attached to this particular piece of art? It's their newsletter. So I don't think it's actually. Hold on. I mean, I. The reason I ask is because I can't imagine someone typing that that doesn't actually work at the NEA. Like it, unless you are a union that is designed to try to spin your way out of the chaos that they created for our children over the last year and a half, I can't imagine thinking this. Bianca Quilaton, I may not be pronouncing that correct. Apologies if not, Bianca, but I don't um, know what the hell this is. Somebody, <laughs> somebody needs to talk to Bianca beyond a teacher's union representative because that is the most one-sided thing I've ever laid eyes on. I don't even know how you come up with that. I mean, do you have to just be ignorant of everything around you in the entire world to think that the teachers unions are the ones that have been pushing to get kids in school? I mean, it's shocking. And the thing, the reason why they, they, they try this is because they think they can get away with it. I mean, like, look how they tried rehabbing and covering for Cuomo. You yeah. know, they're just gaslighting the public and they're trying to get the teachers unions off the hook for keeping kids out of school, which they know parents, voters are enraged about. And they're trying to rewrite history. Shameless. They're just liars. They're just complete <laughs> abject liars. Yeah. Another perfect example is now we find out in California, Newsom has a hundred million dollar surplus. A hundred million dollars. I, I, I would remind you that, you know, less than a year ago, op-ed boards across the country were saying Mitch McConnell wants to kill state government. He wants states to drop dead. That was a direct quote. That was a drop. Yeah, that a was a direct they wanted to drop dead. 
Because remember, they were all going to go bankrupt. Bullshit. $100 million. And here's the best part. He's got, he has this huge surplus that they, that they said, if you remember last summer, we're not going to be able to pay our firefighters or police policemen because yeah, of the tried, federal government. They tried claiming that. Right. So, so that's why we needed this huge state uh, and local bailout, as they called it at the time. But what he plans to do is basically go send checks to California voters amidst his recall. Yeah. Like he yeah literally he's literally do a universal send, basic income pilot program. Uh, he's literally going to take the money that you send the federal government and it's going, it's going to Gavin Newsom for him to turn around and write to people in California so he can preserve Unreal. his political future. They're Unreal. expanding Medicaid to people in California illegally. That's oh. infuriating. That's infuriating. It's a lot of more COVID stuff. This is all just COVID stuff. I mean, I can't even, I don't even really know how to process all that. It makes me so angry. This is the like, Mr. French Laundry all of a sudden finds himself with $100 billion thanks to the taxpayer across the American, uh, across our country. And he is going to just systematically write it out to his potential voters. Thanks, guys. Great information. Hey, great media work on that, by the way. We, we did terrific reporting on what was happening in state and local governments. Yeah, great really great. Uh, outstanding work uh, to our firefighters. Nice job. Uh, all right. So let's get to this interview. Uh, Chris Christie joins us. He's got a lot to say, as always. Let's get right to him. Governor Chris Christie, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Listen, you are not only an insightful guy when it comes into politics, but you're pretty entertaining too. We've been pining to get you on the program here for a while just to sort of ballpark what we've got going on in Washington and what we can expect on the way to 2024 and beyond. But I, I have to start with the Biden administration. I know you follow this stuff quickly uh, or closely because of your day job, but what do you make of, of these guys in this progressive first hundred and some odd days? Well, look, it's a guy who has become um, a complete false leader. You know, he ran saying he was going to bring the country together, work with both parties, be a transitional president. And now he's decided he wants to be a transformational president. He wants to be FDR without a depression or a world war. Um, <laughs> we're spending more than we did to get out of the depression and the world war combined. And we don't have either of those problems. And in fact, he's just lied to us over and over again about, you know, when he got into office and since he's been there, um, you know, he calls the, um, uh, you know, the COVID package a COVID package, although 10% of the 1.9 billion is about health care. And we had just appropriated 900 billion, um, you know, a month or two before. He then says he's got a two and a quarter billion dollar infrastructure package, which best case, 25% is on infrastructure, what we define as infrastructure. Um, and, and now he, he has this whole new other program that the whole thing's going to cost $6 trillion altogether. This is not what the American people voted for. It's not what they want. And he's going to feel that and he's going to feel it soon. So what do you think of, do you think he basically just ran a Trojan horse campaign? Or do you think at some point after the election, he just decided, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose control of the leftists at some point. So we might as well just go down that tack from the very beginning. Yeah, I, look, I think, you know, he couldn't run as a genuine lefty in the, in the primary because he couldn't have gone far enough left to out-left Bernie Sanders or yeah, right. Elizabeth Warren. So what he had to do was, tactically, he had to play the middle and say, you're not ready for that over there. 
but he also knew that that's where all the energy in the party was. That's where all of their energy was in the House of Representatives was on the far left. So I don't know whether he, he planned to, to, to have the whole thing be a sham or once he got, once he won, he said to himself, well, if I'm going to get anything done, I got to go here. And he knows he's only going to be there one term. I mean, I see him telling everybody he's going to run for a second term. I mean, you know, he won't be able to walk for a second term, run for a second term. So, you know, he knows it's one term. This is his shot. And for him, he probably knows he's got two years. Yeah. Because yeah. If, if history is any guide, he'll lose the house. So, you know, I think that's what's going on here, Josh. And I, and I don't, I think this is just Joe Biden being who Joe Biden is, um, who is a practical politician at the end of the day. He sees this as where the daylight is. He's running to the daylight. Yeah, that's pretty good analysis. That's the best I've heard. I, I, I'm going to ask you to put your governor hat on here because there's one economic problem in my view that stands out above all else, and it's the anemic jobs reports with the vast amount of spending over the last year. And yet we're now in supposedly having this breakout quarter. We only create a couple hundred thousand jobs. And most people are saying, all right, well, the, the federal unemployment plus ups are clearly a problem. People are making a logical economic choice not to seek employment because they're frankly getting paid more to stay at home. If you got that gov hat on, you're looking, you know, in your former capacity, a lot of governors from red states are saying, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to turn this stuff off. What, what do you think you'd do under those circumstances? Well, you know, in New Jersey, it would be tough, right? Yeah. I'd have a, I'd have a Democratic legislature who would be pining to take all this money and spend it, right? right. Um, and so, but, but I would say to folks, look, what do you want to do here? We're going to have a huge economic and budgetary cliff to deal with if Biden continues the way he's going. Because people, listen, New Jersey's unemployment rate's at 7.8% as we sit here today. Um, it, it is in a in very bad way because our governor completely overreacted to the COVID stuff. Um, no nuance to his policies. This is a guy who still has a mask requirement in effect as we speak right now. <laughs> Says that, you know, he's got to look at the CDC stuff. He's He was a bond salesman for Goldman Sachs. I mean, what the hell does he know? Uh, he's going to analyze it now? Or, or, or his ex excellent health commissioner, who's the woman who crafted the policy to put COVID patients back into nursing homes? Yeah, right. Let's remember something, Josh. New Jersey, for instance, is, is under such a lag for two reasons. One, because Phil Murphy and his policies killed more people than in any state per capita in the nation. That's incredible. Third, and it, how come that never gets any publicity? How come nobody ever says anything to that? Well, the reason they don't is because everybody's Cuomo obsessed, right? Yeah. So the national media is Cuomo obsessed. It's been the greatest gift to Phil Murphy ever. And the Republicans have been Cuomo obsessed. And I keep trying to tell them our election comes first. Right. Our election comes this November. If you want to send a message to the whole country, defeat Phil Murphy in November. You Like I defeated John Corzine in 09. Oh, that's yeah. the entire stage for 2010. And so I, I don't, listen, Murphy killed more people than any other governor per capita in America. And right now, India may be catching up, but <laughs> more than any political subdivision in the world. That's incredible. Yes, yeah, and, and yet no attention. I mean, is that, I look back at your race in 09, both you and McDonald 
basically paved the way from an electoral standpoint to what the huge gains we saw in 2010. We're seeing in Virginia much of that same sort of environmental shift. Now, I don't, I don't know. It's a lot bluer state than it used to be. What's your look at New Jersey? I mean, is that going to be a competitive race, you think? It should be a competitive race. Um, you know, it's going to – listen, psychologically, you know, Jack Chitarelli, there's a primary. There's three people in the primary. But I think Jack Chitarelli is a former assemblyman who ran four years ago and lost in the primary. Um, I think he's probably the nominee. But in New Jersey, you have to be funded. Yeah. You know, we're in the New York and Philadelphia media markets. So it's the first and fourth most expensive markets. You have to be able to be funded. I think if Chitterelli can max out, we have a public funding system. So if he can max out, um, you know, then I think that would give him about $12 million to spend in the general election. I, I think that would be enough for him to really make a dent. But is he going to be funded? He has not been very well funded in the primary. And this is where the psychological stuff really helps for 2022 also to win in 21, because what it showed donors was that, oh, man, we can win. Because remember, people were so down after 08 with Obama. Oh, yeah. Yep. 60 seats in the United States Senate. I mean, they, they were they were crushed. And then all of a sudden, McDonald and I come back and win in 09. And people say, well, wait a second. Maybe we could do something. And that not only recruits better candidates, it also funds those candidates better. No so question. I think New Jersey, we got a shot. Um, I think Jack Chitterelli can be a candidate who could win, um, but he's got to be well-funded. And that's going to be a decision ultimately, not only for New Jersey donors, but for national donors. Are you going to get in here and you're going to help this guy get funded? Uh, if they do, I think Jack's got a real legitimate chance. Because let me tell you, there's so many issues to run against Phil Murphy on. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's breathtaking. He's raised taxes every year. He, it, How about this? Think about just one stat. In my eight years as governor, state spending went up 5% total in eight years. Right. In his four years, spending has gone up 29%. Unbelievable. It's breathtaking. Unbelievable. And the people in New Jersey know that ultimately that bill is going to be dumped at their door. Right. Right. No, no question about it. A lot of vulnerabilities there. And it feels like the environment's shifting a bit. I mean, I, anecdotally speaking, you see people across the country, conservatives beginning to turn out. You saw the special election in Texas where not just the Texas six, but all kinds of undercard uh, school board elections and the like come conservatives way. It happened in Nebraska. It's happening kind of everywhere. I mean, is that your assessment? It feels a little bit like conservatives are coming back together in a pretty strong way here. Yeah. And listen, the way to do it, and this is what I've continued to say the things I'm saying is we got to stop looking in the rearview mirror. 2020 is over. Yeah. Now, look, I don't know everything that happened in the election, but I know this much. Joe Biden's living in the White House. He's signing executive orders and he's speaking before joint sessions of Congress. He's the president. And, and what he's doing is going to be irreversible if we let it happen. So conservatives should be uniting in their opposition to these policies, which, by the way, you know, there's no conservative, I don't care where you are on the spectrum, whether you're Elise Stefanik, you know, or, or whether you're Jim Jordan, right. I don't care where you are on the spectrum, these policies are ones that we don't agree with. And so what I think we need to be doing is uniting against Biden and Harris. And if we unite against Biden and Harris, that brings the party together in what we're against. And then we will work out what we're for once we get authority. But we've got to stop these folks. And we got to stop looking in the rearview mirror. 2020 is over. And we've got to stop worrying about what happened in 2020. Stop arguing about it. 
who do you, do you really want to see another leadership fight in Washington? No. Anybody in America cares? <laughs> Nobody gives a damn whether it's Liz Cheney or Lee Stefanik. They probably most people in America don't have any idea who Lee Stefanik is. Right. And Liz Cheney, you know, the only reason they know her is because she's Dick's daughter. Yep. Maybe. Maybe. Yep. So let's stop already. Who wants to hear Kevin McCarthy talking about leadership fights anymore? I don't. <laughs> I mean, and the American people don't either. They're like, wait a second. Joe Biden is Israel is Israel is burning. Right. We're pulling out of Afghanistan, which I think is an enormous mistake. And it's going to come back to bite us. The Chinese are running roughshod over us. We're paying ransom to keep a pipeline open. And we're worried about whether it's Liz Cheney or Lee Stefanik. <laughs> hey, Josh, wake me when it's over, man. Totally. There are problems we should be dealing with here. No, no question. I mean, look, and all of this is, we've argued on Ruthless, it's all a concerted effort by the press uniting with the Democratic Party to try to distract you from the real stuff that happens, right? I mean, you can't find a headline on CNN that doesn't deal with the leadership divide. And, and just as you said, nobody gives a shit. No. I mean, this is, this no. is ultimately... <laughs> A, in, a New York and D.C. punditry talking to each other while some really pretty consequential stuff is happening. Enormously consequential stuff is happening, and that's what we as Republicans have to be united to stop. And, and that's what's going to bring the party back together is a forward-looking opposition to the Biden agenda and then a development of an agenda. Look, we're only 16 weeks into the Biden presidency, so we shouldn't be expected to have a unified Republican agenda this soon. This doesn't happen. What was the unified Democratic agenda in January 17, except, or, or May of 17, rather, except impeach Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, right. you know, other than that, I was living through that, you know, Russian, you know, the Russian collusion and impeach Donald Trump. They didn't have any program. So right. let's, not, let's not let the press hold us to a different standard. I can tell you what the Republican Party is for. We are for opposing Joe Biden's $6 trillion in spending. We're for opposing, uh, you know, his horrible policies in the Middle East, which is already causing war in the Middle East, which didn't happen during Donald Trump's four years. I mean, those are the things we're for. And, and you know, I saw the New York Times yesterday, Josh, their headline was, you know, something to the effect of, you know, conflict in the Middle East undercuts Trump's, yes. you know, undercuts Trump's policies, Trump's policies. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Hamas wasn't shooting any rockets when Donald Trump was in office. I know it. I, know it. I mean, it would be hilarious if it wasn't just so ridiculous. It's like a parody. It's absurd. You know? And and you know what? We have to continue to remind people. I don't know. There there weren't people rushing over the border in the South when Donald Trump was president. Yeah. There weren't people killing each other in the Middle East. Hamas was not reasserting itself in the Middle East when Donald Trump was president. Instead, we had the Abraham Accords. I mean, yeah. look, I, I, like everybody else, I'll have my differences from a policy and a personnel perspective with the president, uh, President Trump. But you look at these first 16 weeks of Biden. Let me tell you something. Jimmy Carter, 2.0. Yeah, it is. When, you saw, when I saw that picture of he and, and, and his wife with uh, President and Mrs. Carter, now, look, very nice of him to go and visit President Carter. I have great respect for anybody who's held that office. But, I mean, I can't <laughs> wait for that picture to be used in 2024. Yeah. I can't, yeah. can't wait. I mean, it's like, can't it come now? 
<laughs> so we can use the picture now? Totally. Totally. It was amazing. Well, let's talk 2024 a little bit because we saw your name in the headlines heading down to a big confab in Austin, Texas, where a bunch of, you know, what people think are, are rumored 2024 candidates, yourself included. You're getting a lot of buzz around town as somebody who's considering it. Are you thinking about running for president in 2024? I certainly won't preclude it, Josh. I mean, I think it's good. So one of the luxuries of having done this once before is you realize what matters and what doesn't. Right. And when you're doing it for the first time, you really don't know. You think you know, but you don't. <laughs> um, what, what happens in 2021 is of little relevance for the most part for candidates uh, or potential candidates. And so for me, what I want to do is to try to lead the party in a productive and smart way for us to continue to argue for populist type um, policies, but not to be reckless, not to be reckless with our policies, not to be reckless with our language, to be smart about it. And that doesn't mean to be timid. No one's ever gonna call me timid. No. I mean, I'm gonna go out and Joe Biden's a liar, I'm gonna call him a liar. But there's, there's a recklessness to some of the stuff that happened over the last four years, which came back to cost us suburban voters, which cost us the election in my view in 2020. So I want to try to lead the party in that way um, and, and be a messenger for that. And then after 2022 is over, we'll make a decision about whether we're going to run or not. But I certainly won't preclude it. And I'm also not going to be one of these people who's going to say, well, I'll wait to see what President Trump's going to do. You know, I'm not going to defer to anyone yeah. if I decide that it's what I want to do and that I think I'm the best option for the party and for the country. And I think if you say you're deferring to someone, um, that's a real sign of both weakness and indecision. And we've already got that in the White House. I don't think we need a Republican. <laughs> well, uh, first off, thanks so much for joining us, Governor. I was having some technical difficulties, but I could not miss this interview for my life. And uh, Josh led into the most important question I probably have. There are a lot of folks who are visiting Texas. There's already a lot of talk about who might be up, who might not be. Uh, you know, I know Marco Rubio also went down there. And one of the first questions I want to ask is, how did it feel for you to destroy Marco Rubio's campaign <laughs> live on stage at that debate? Well, let, let's say this. Um, it was certainly something, as you know from watching it closely, and I know you did, um, <laughs> that we prepared for. I mean, you know, we, we baited him the whole week, um, you know, calling him the boy in the bubble and all the rest of that. And, and, and so we were hoping we'd get a question early because, and let's, let's make something clear. We were doing it because we knew that for us to survive, we had to go through Marco, mm -hmm. um, for us to survive to South Carolina. Um, but I will tell you that night that when it's going on, I knew it was going well, but I didn't, you never know quite how well when you're the one up on the stage, right? You, you think, I can't believe he just said that for a third time. But you're like saying, okay, well, you're not seeing the split screen on TV or whatever. So at the break, I went down to the edge of the stage where you were allowed to talk to your family. And my wife and my two younger children were down there. And I said to her, so what do you think? She said, what do I think? She said, don't answer another question the rest of the debate. If they ask you another question, just say pass. Because <laughs> you can't do better than what you just did. So just stand there, smile, say you love America, and get off the stage. Because I, I mean, truly, that could be probably the most electric moment I've seen in, in debate history on television. It was unbelievable how hard the impact that that had. I mean, it was unreal, unreal performance. And it was, it was, it was funny because as I went to go back to my podium, um, as the baby was getting ready to start again, um, Donald Trump 
came over to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, don't ever get mad at me. <laughs> he said, that poor little guy, I thought he was going to pass out. I thought I was going to have to catch him. <laughs> so this is, this is reason A1A why I want you to run for president. I, yeah. I, I've respected you forever. I think you'd make a hell of a president. But I, but I do think, if nothing else, one of the candidates on stage is going to be absolutely annihilated by Chris Christie at some I think point. So. And I that's, a safe, that's a very safe bet. Yeah. Well, you know, we, listen, we come to play, fellas. I mean, yeah. if you're going to get on the stage, my view's always been, I mean, you know, one of the moments that I really love that didn't get nearly as much attention as, as the Marco thing was when in one of the debates earlier, Jeb brought up federal regulation of fantasy football. And I just couldn't like contain myself. I'm like, seriously, we've got terrorist attacks all over the world. We we've got a dreadful economy. And seriously, Jeb, you want to talk? You want to know why people turn their TVs off? That's why. That's it. Federal regulation of fantasy football. I mean, and afterwards, you know, it got a little bit of attention. But I know that our team are like, that's going to be the moment of the debate when you're mocking. And it wasn't. I don't remember. Trump must have said something. Yeah, it was hard to get. It was hard to overshadow Trump at that stage. He sort of had, he was swinging a hot bat with the Rand Paul stage. stuff and everything else. Listen, you know, at any stage, it was very tough, too, and, and the, because the media was focused on him. And he's one of those. Listen, he is a unique personality to ever have run for president of the United States mm -hmm. because he's the first guy who ever had 100 percent name ID walking in. Hundred mm -hmm. percent name ID. Who That's wasn't right. the president, and 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 it was name ID from like a fake show, where he was like fake firing people. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> and, and people, but people watched it. Well, he could do that. He could definitely be president. You know. So it was very hard because how are you going to critique? You know, The Apprentice. It was very hard. <laughs> to do, you know? so it was easier to talk about Marco Rubio's record than it was to talk about Donald Trump's. Well, I noticed of all of the 2024 candidates, there's been this sort of pilgrimage down to Mar-a-Lago. You've not done that. You've decided to be your own man. Stay, I know you've got your professional life to deal with too, that probably precludes you from going all over the place. But, but walk us through that because I, you were so close to Trump. You were instrumental in his victory in 2016 from my perspective. Are you still talking to him? Yeah, look, I am. I, I, the president and I, here's what's different me and all those other folks. I've had a relationship with him for 20 years. Right. Mm. Donald Trump and I met and started to regularly socialize in, in late 2001. Um, and we used to go out, myself, Mary Pat, he and Melania, three or four times a year for dinner, every year between then and, and 2014. And so, you know, there's a lot of history with us. And, and I know, you know, some of the folks on his staff, they would watch me do debate prep with him and say the familiarity between the two of you is a little bit unnerving because you say stuff to each other that we can't believe you'd actually say to each other in the context of debate prep and, and, and have a history there. And I said, look, that's what happens when you've been friends. So look, the, the president and I have had agreements. We've had disagreements. Let's face it. He fired me as transition chairman. I mean, let's not miss that little nugget, <laughs> right? two days after the election. Um, then he made me chairman of the opioid commission. He offered me seven or eight different positions in the administration, all of which I turned down. Uh, and, you know, and then I, I was the guy who prepped him for, for the debates this time. 
And, you know, we both wound up getting COVID. I was just going to say, and you got coronavirus out of the whole deal. <laughs> For a volunteer position. Um, <laughs> you know, I got to play Joe Biden and I got COVID. You know, it's really what a, what a, what a double header. So I, I think that, you know, those who look at my relationship with the president um, they, and see, I say certain things that are very candid. And the things that I say publicly where I've disagreed with them, almost every time before I've said those publicly, I've said them to him privately. Well, I think that's also a huge part of, so I came up, I cut my teeth in New York politics. And I remember when you first ran for governor, it was like, uh, for us to see that happen, it was like a great awakening. There'd be these town halls and you've got Chris Christie showing up to these like union bosses and telling them in their face exactly how it is. And we hadn't seen that before. No one had seen anything like that before. Uh, it was almost like we'd, we'd reverted into almost completely like a country club Republican party. And finally we had ourselves a fighter. Yeah, listen, and I thought that's what was going to carry us to victory in 2016. And we just wound up getting a fighter who had even more fight than I did, or at least on the surface, it seemed that way. And so, you know, I, I remember when I knew we were in big trouble, we, we did a poll in January in New Hampshire. And, you know, it had us at that time in second place behind Trump, but we were behind him by double digits. But the worst news was that when you asked Trump voters who was their second choice, 36% of them said me. Yeah. And the next closest was Ted Cruz at eight. Wow. Wow. And so, wow. That's your lane, right? That's yeah, what's right. known we, as we, you know, we all looked at the numbers and we said, we know what this means. I mean, he stays in the race and continues to be successful. There's no way for us to get around him. And yeah. so, you know, at that point, you just have to tip your hat. And, and it's part of the reason I endorsed him. You know, I mean, I, I, part of it was our friendship. But part of it also was the conclusion that, like, this guy's going to win. He's going to win the nomination for sure. And then when he's up against Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's such a bad candidate, he could beat her too. And that's really what I felt when I made the endorsement right after the South Carolina primary. And everybody thought I was crazy at the time. You remember the reaction. Oh, yeah. It was, was awful. And I lost 20 points in my uh, popularity in New Jersey for endorsing Trump. But my view in it was I thought he had a very good chance to be president. I wanted to make him a better candidate and a better president. We have all that history with each other. So I don't need to go to Mar-a-Lago, right. Josh, to circle back to your question, to remind Donald Trump that we've been friends for 20 years. Are there times when he's angry with me and not speaking to me? Yes. Are there times when I'm angry with him and not speaking to him? Yes. But that's what happens in a 20-year friendship with two people who are not shy. Yeah. And I think that's fair to say of both of us. All right, I've got, I got three important questions for you that we ask every guest. Right, I heard about these. I'm ready. They're, they're like really, really important. But there's one observation I want to make uh, before we do that. I, it has been a running theory of mine that had you run for president in 2012, you not only would have won the Republican nomination, but you would have been elected president of the United States. Mm. Do you ever think about that in, in, in terms of, and I know you had a lot going, you can't revisit the decision-making that brought you to that place, but do you think that that window now in retrospect was wide open? I don't, um, even in retrospect. But what I'll say is this, it doesn't matter because I didn't feel ready. Yeah, right. And that's right. how I made the decision was that I didn't feel ready. And if I wasn't ready, I couldn't be the guy that you saw in the town hall meetings out on the national stage because I'd always have that little bit of fear inside me that I wasn't ready to be president. And if you've got that fear, you got no business asking people for their money or their vote. Yeah, that's great. But, but 
I have to think about it because guys like you ask me about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I have no choice. I'd love to forget about it, Josh, but you son of a bitch. You forget. So thank you very much. You're quite welcome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get, let's get to the big questions here. The first one is your last meal on earth. You can you pick mean, whatever you want. You mean the actual food, not where, not a restaurant or something, but like well, the it can actual be. food. It, it, well, I'm, it is food, but if it's from a particular place, you can say that too. Listen, I, it doesn't have to be a particular place. If, you, if it's my last meal, get me some spaghetti carbonara done the right way. I'll die happy. Plates Perfect. of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't, I mean, the thing about the last meal on earth, there's no next morning, right? So you can really overdo <laughs> it. Don't worry about Pepsid or anything like that. It's over. <laughs> it's over. It's okay. over. Heartburn is not a big problem at that point. No, <laughs> no, no. 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 All right. I love it. Uh, second question. If you weren't doing this, if you weren't in the intersection of politics and business and, and you never really had a public service component to your life, what, what do you think you'd be doing with yourself? I'd be involved somehow in Major League Baseball. I love and, it. And, and I, I am now because I'm on the board of directors of the Mets, um, which is great. And I'm a lifelong Mets fan. But if I hadn't gotten involved in this, I would have been involved in Major League Baseball somehow. That is terrific. Maybe you can set Rob Manfred uh, straight for the rest of us. <laughs> I, I'd have a couple of things to say, but we'll move on. No, I, I don't want to jeopardize your position. <laughs> All right. Third and final question. This one's serious. What motivates Chris Christie more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? The thrill of victory. Because when victory happens, that's when you actually get a chance to make a difference. Mm. No one likes to lose. And when I lost in New Hampshire, I hated it and, and it hurt, but I got over it much more quickly than I thought I would. Hmm. Um, it is the thrill of victory. It is the idea that when you win, you have a chance to really do something. And to me, what's always motivated me about public life is that you can make a huge difference in the lives of people that you'll probably never meet, but certainly will never know. Hmm. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. So it's the thrill of victory that motivates me more than the agony of defeat, um, you know, motivates me for sure. I love it. I love it. Great answer. Governor Chris Christie, thank you so much for joining us on Ruthless. Yeah, thank you so well, much. You're great. Anytime. Should all right. Shouldn't have been this long and invite me back whenever you want. Absolutely. We will do this periodically. We would That'd love that. I'd love to. I'd love oh, to. Awesome. All right. Thank, thank you. Good to Thanks see you. Thanks so much. So this dude's just entertaining. I mean, he's <laughs> to say the least, he's awesome. <laughs> He takes everything on the nose, as we said on top. I mean, he he will. If hey, are you running, running for president? Yeah, I might be. Basically, there's right? just no, there's no equivocating. It's just yeah, like it runs right at every. Question. He's not giving you the like BS run around. He, he's not trying to give you some like calm speak. He he just goes straight at it. And he took some shots at people indirectly, right? By yeah, by taking note of the people who are making the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago, and basically like he doesn't have to do that because he's been. You know, he's been around and been been friends with the president, former president, as long as he has. He doesn't feel the need to do that kind of thing. Interesting, yeah. right? I mean, that's going to be big time when that when that when that interview drops. Woo, it's going to make news, man. I like it. Well, this has been a hell of an episode. That's right. And, and like I told folks, this is going to be a hell of a week because we got a triple header. It's not two. Don't get don't get expecting three episodes. It's just that you know we had such a lineup, the streets couldn't wait for it. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Wednesday. Stay ruthless.